starting at verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. Know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are, to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness? But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have obeyed or yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray that the Lord would bless us in the consideration of these words. Our Father in heaven, we pray that the spirit of the Lord would be among us, that we might be freed from the blindness and the bondage of sin, that we might behold the face of Jesus Christ unveiled and be transformed from glory to glory, even as by the Lord, the Spirit. Draw near to us, we ask. Open our eyes, that we may behold wondrous things out of thy law. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Last week, we looked at the passage preceding these verses. We looked at the Spirit of God using accommodations or speaking after the, the manner of men. We saw that not everything in the Scripture is accommodation, as some say, but there are allegories, paradoxes, human passions ascribed to God. We even saw an argument ad hominem from 2 Corinthians 3 earlier. We saw that this is a rebuke who would t- to those who would say that all of Scripture is figurative, or that somehow the substance of what's taught in the Bible is figurative rather than literally true. We saw an exhortation from this to discern the things in Scripture that differ, to use some of the rules of uh, proper interpretation, that if something is said in the Bible that seems to contradict a plain truth delivered elsewhere in Scripture, that it is figurative very likely. If it detracts from the perfections of God, it is figurative. And if it detracts from the form of sound words, the grand truths of the scripture concerning the grace of the gospel, the duties of the law, or any such thing, that it is figurative. We also saw our slavery to righteousness must be as willing as was our slavery to uncleanness. We saw that those who are forgiven much will love much. We saw that love is the fulfilling of God's law and therefore we must run in the pathway of his commandments rather than crawl or walk. We saw a rebuke to our sluggishness where the vanities of this life often take up our attention and our mental energy, our emotional commitments rather than those things of righteousness and obedience. And then we had an exhortation to be sold out to Christ to leave nothing for master uncleanness or Lord's sin, 
but rather to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our reasonable service. Now, this afternoon, we'll consider sin unfruitful, shameful, and deadly. We'll look at this in three parts. Sin past, being unfruitful. Sin present, causing us to be ashamed. And sin future, being deadly. First then, sin past. Let's look again at verse 20. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. These words were, when ye were, this is in the past, at that time, it used to be this way. It's an imperfect verb. And here he's giving us the reason why verse 19 is the case. Why is it that we should yield ourselves with the same vigor, with the same vim as we did to sin unto righteousness? Well, here's the reason for, because of this, and he's going to give us an analysis of past, present, and future. And he's going to say, these are the reasons why you should not yield yourselves to uncleanness, but rather you must yield yourselves unto righteousness. Here's the reason. For when, he says, or as long as this was the case, while this was the case, here's the reason you should yield your members as servants to righteousness unto holiness, because in the past... As long as you used to be the servants of sin, he says, ye were free from righteousness. Have you ever heard people talk about they want to be free? And their version, let's say some libertarians, they say, I just want freedom. Well, what do you mean? Well, I think we should be free to have prostitution. Okay, well, you're saying you want freedom to what? to sin. You want freedom to be in bondage to the devil. That's what you want. And when you were the slaves of sin, you were in fact free. There was a form of freedom. At that time, ye were, again, the imperfect tense. You were constantly free. At every single moment of your slavery, you had freedom from what? From righteousness, he says. For all that time that ye were constantly the slaves of sin, you were constantly free from righteousness. You had your freedom. Now here he says in the Greek text, that righteousness. He's been talking about righteousness throughout this letter, hasn't he? He's talked about the righteousness of justification from chapter 1, verse 18. Through chapter 3, verse 20, we have condemnation. And then at verse 21, he starts with the theme of being justified by faith without works all the way through the end of chapter 5. He deals with this grand righteousness, that righteousness. Now in chapter 6, he's shown there's also a second righteousness, not one imputed, but one imparted. Not one fully perfect and equal in all saints as justification, but one that is unequal and growing up to perfection in all the saints in sanctification. That gospel righteousness, in other words, you are free from it. You are under the bondage and guilt, and you are under the power and pollution of sin. Now that that old way is done, he's looking back upon it. Yes, it's true. You were free. You were free, baby. You were free from righteousness. 
You had no claim of righteousness in justification or in sanctification at that time. The whole time you were a slave to sin. Prosper of Aquitaine in his book, Grace and Free Will, says this, He who serves the devil is free from God, but he who being freed serves God is free from the devil. As a result, it is apparent that a false liberty could have been had from a defect of the human will. You know what that means? Do you believe that man has a free will? Well, he says, sure. Fallen man has a free will. It's free from righteousness. It is a false freedom because man's will is defective. He has a false liberty. He's free from righteousness. He's free from God. He serves the devil. He goes on. But that a true liberty could not have been received without the help of the liberator. That is the one who makes you free. If the Son shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Yes, there's a false claim of liberty. It's called service to the devil. But if we want true freedom, he says, God, the liberator, must come in and make us free. Then verse 21. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? What fruit, he asks. Please open to Proverbs chapter 1, page 669 of your pew Bibles. Proverbs chapter 1. If you have an opportunity to read through the book of Proverbs, which I hope you do, I hope you can read through the whole Bible in a year if possible, and read the book of Proverbs and think about fruit. What are the consequences of certain ways of living? Proverbs has much to say about fruit. Start there at verse 28. These people had been warned by wisdom to repent. They were simple, and they wouldn't listen to the warning. So now... This is the result. This is the fruit. They shall call, then they shall call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat of the fruit of their own way, and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. Notice there. They have a way that they have chosen, and it's not the way of God's fear. That way has what? Fruit at the end of it. You plant a certain kind of seed, you get a certain type of fruit. It just takes some time. Just wait. It'll bring forth fruit eventually. What's the fruit of their own way? Well, he says, they're going to call, God, help me. And will God say, well, you know, I've been waiting to do that for a long time. I've been over the banisters of heaven, wringing my hands and crying because you won't come to Jesus. Is that what he's going to say? No, I'm not going to listen to you because I reproved you so often and you said, I don't like your way. I like my own way. You will seek him early, doesn't he say? Seek me early. Well, yeah, he does. 
The psalmist encourages us to seek God early, early in your life, early in your day, early, early, all the time. Seek the Lord. And they're going to do that, and God's not going to be found. They will eat the fruit of their own way. They will be filled with their own devices. That's what they're going to have to eat. You reap what you sow. You plant this kind of seed, an apple seed, you get an apple tree. You plant bramble seeds, you get brambles. You plant weed seeds, or usually they plant themselves, and you get plenty of weeds, don't you? You will eat the fruit of your own way. Turn over to Hosea chapter 10, page 916 of your pew Bibles concerning fruit. 916, Hosea chapter 10. We looked at this, I think, last week or the former week, the prior week. Verse 12. Sow to yourselves in righteousness. Now, you can sow with needles and thread. That's not what this is. This is sowing a seed in the ground. Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy. Break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, till he come and rain righteousness upon you. Ye have plowed wickedness, ye have reaped iniquity. That's exactly what Paul's saying, isn't it? This leads to more iniquity unto iniquity. You sow these seeds, and what do you get back? More lawlessness. Break up your fallow ground. When soil is not worked, it becomes hardened, and seeds can't get in there. That's what happens. So part of repentance is you recognize, my mind and my spirit are like fallow ground. I have a hardened heart. My mind has been crusted over with falsehood and error and vanity, and the seed of God can't get in there. And so God says, break up the fallow ground. Get ready to receive the word. That's what he's saying. Break it up because you already sowed the wrong kind of seeds. You plowed, you worked hard to get in there and get your seeds of wickedness in. Now, he says, you have eaten the fruit of lies. Oh, man, don't worry about God. You know, he's just like big granddaddy in the sky. He'll be nice to all you. He'll just look down with love on everybody. Really? Is that what the Bible, when God describes himself, does he say, I'm granddaddy in the sky? the big man upstairs, as they blasphemously refer to God. No, those are lies. What will be the fruit of those lies? Well, you sow seeds of wickedness. You work hard to do your sinning. And then God says, you will reap iniquity. That's all you've got at the end of the day. You have no fruit to show for it but sin. You trusted in your own way, he says. You have eaten the fruit of lies. You rely on your mighty men, not on the Lord who gives strength in battle. So you've lost, he says, the fruit of their own way. Romans 6.22. Romans 6.22 refers, and we'll look at this, God willing, next week. But now, being made free from sin and become the servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. 
There's the fruit that's missing in the life of sin. When you have freedom from righteousness, you have no holiness. You're not devoted to God. You're not pure. You're not clean. You're not seeking him in all of his ways. That's not holy. You have no fruit to show for it, but the fruit of iniquity, the fruit where you will eat of your own ways and be filled with your devices. Look at verse 4 of chapter 7 of Romans. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead. Why? That we should bring forth fruit unto God. Verse 5, For when ye were in the flesh, the motions of sin which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. There are ends to the lives that we live. There is fruit to the way that we choose. Death or life. Holiness and God or vanity and lies and iniquity and death. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. Page 1182 concerning the fruit. Remember, this is sin in the past. Why is it that I shouldn't let sin reign over me? Why is it that I should not sin because I'm under the law? Here's why. Here's the reason. Think about your past. Analyze your past. Ephesians 5, starting at verse 9. For the fruit of the Spirit, what is it? In all goodness and righteousness and truth proving what is acceptable unto the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. Now, kids, if you're doing what your parents want you to do, are you afraid that they'll look on and see you doing what you're supposed to? Uh Uh-oh. I'm obeying mommy. She might see me. (gasps) I'm going to hide, right? Is that what you do? When do you hide from mommy and daddy? Is it when you steal something you shouldn't have? When you're not doing what you're supposed to do? Do you want mommy and daddy to see you? No. You hide yourself. What do the wicked do? They have unfruitful works. Where do they do them? In secret. In the dark. In night clubs, ladies of the night, shameless women who do things they ought not to do. When do they do it? Do they do it out in the open? Well, sometimes when things get bad enough, when the land gets defiled enough, you'll find that all these bugs that should be hidden under rocks come out into the daylight and show off like Sodom and Gomorrah their sin, as Israel did. But normally, when their conscience is semi-functional, they want to hide in the darkness. They're ashamed of their deeds, so they will do them in secret. Kids, if you're doing something in secret, and your parents don't know about it, your parents who love you and who chasten you and who want to see you thrive in your life, and you want to hide something from them, guess what? You shouldn't be doing it. And your conscience is telling you, shame, shame on you for doing that. And you say, I don't want to listen to that. Shut up, shut up. I don't want to hear that. When you should say, you're right. Conscience, 
you're right. I shouldn't be doing this. I should confess my sin. I should get the poison out that I've swallowed in and now it's troubling my little tummy. I'd have vomited out by repentance. That's what repentance is. It's the vomit of the soul. Get that poison out. Don't be going around in the dark hiding from those who love you. Turn over to Philippians chapter 1, page 1184. Concerning fruit, verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in beautiful pictures of kittens and little doggies and happy stars and flowers. Is that what love is? Ooh, 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 baby, I love you. Is that what he's talking about? That your love may abound yet more and more in what? Whoa, 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 knowledge? How does knowledge relate to love? Well, if you're a Christian, you know, understand this. Knowledge and love go hand in hand. If you don't know what God says, you can't do what God says. And love is the fulfilling of his law. That your knowledge or your love would abound in knowledge and in all judgment. That's unloving. But there it is. That ye may approve. Whoa, come on, man. That's so judgmental. That ye may approve things that are excellent. This is excellent. This reflects God's glory. Well, how do you know that? Because my knowledge has increased of the word of God, and I know judgment so that I can say this is good and this is evil. That's what love is. Real, actual love? That's what it is. Why? So that you can be a smarty pants and prove your neighbor wrong? That ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with what? Fruit. Not the fruit of your own way. Not the fruit of lies. Not that you've sowed to yourself iniquity and lawlessness. No. But be filled, he says, with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. Those are the fruits that he's asking about. What fruit did you have then? Show me, what's the result of that life? Righteousness? Glory to God? Praise to God? Are those the fruits that you had at that time? Hebrews chapter 12, page 12, 16. Hebrews 12, we'll read verses 10 and 11. Hebrews 12, 10. For they verily, that is our parents, our fathers, for they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth, what? The peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. You see that? God has fruit in store for us. It comes to us by means of chastening, which seems at the time to be rather unpleasant. I do not appreciate, Lord, the pain that I suffer in my mind or in my body. I do not like these difficult circumstances, people who will not accept me, for, for instance, people who will persecute me, people who hate me because I want to serve you. That doesn't make any sense. 
But God says, I have good in mind for you. I want you to partake in my holiness. You will be cleansed, in other words. You'll be devoted to me. You'll be set apart for my purposes. This chastening accomplishes that holiness. The fruit of righteousness. Peace, he says, is that fruit of righteousness. Now think about all these fruits. Fruits of righteousness, peaceable fruits of righteousness, the unfruitful works of darkness. He's asking them to consider. If you're going to say I should sin because I'm not under law but under grace, you've misunderstood the whole point. You ought to go all the way in for God just like you were all the way in for uncleanness. Why? Think back on your former life. That's why. Think about how unfruitful your former life was. This, then, is the produce yielded at that time when you were free from righteousness. When you were servants of sin, what kind of fruit did you have? What was the fruit of your way? Did you sow to yourselves in righteousness and reap in mercy? No. Did you have fruit unto God? No. Was there goodness, righteousness, and truth? No. Did it produce peaceable fruits of righteousness? No. Were those fruits under the glory and praise of God by Jesus Christ? No, no such fruit. Zero on the scoreboard. A goose egg, that's it, nothing. Let's turn back to Romans 6. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? You are now ashamed. Sin present is shameful. In those things, he says. What things is he talking about? Well, it's the fruit, isn't it? What sort of fruit when you were free from righteousness? When you had your beloved sins and served the devil? What kind of feeling do you have about those things? But now, he says, these very things. Now, he says, at the present time... Think back, what is your response on those things? Shame. Now this word is very interesting. Ashamed here can mean to shame yourself. It can be a middle verb where you act upon yourself. You condemn yourself, which would be the function of your conscience. You think back upon your former fruitless state of sin and you get shame. Your mind condemns the things that you did then. That's the idea. Or it could be passive. You are shamed by others. Namely, by God himself and by those who actually love you. They would shame you as well were you to tell them the things you did. God will shame you. His word will shame you for those former evil deeds. Your conscience will shame you. Society will shame you if it's properly formed. Freiburg says of this verb, ashamed, it denotes a sense of guilt and remorse. Guilt is that feeling where you see, you see yourself as condemned. I have done wrong. My mind tells me this is wrong. I know I should not have done that. Remorse is where you wish you had not done that. I wish I had not done that foolish thing to my brother or my sister, to my husband or my wife, or that I had not said that word or done that deed. 
Psalm 119, verse 6, Then shall I not be ashamed. Well, how do I keep myself from being ashamed? Then shall I not be ashamed when I have respect unto all thy commandments. When we're in bondage to sin, do we have respect to God's commandments? No. So thinking back upon that life, in the present tense right now, we have shame. We are ashamed to think of it. We read in Ephesians 5.12, It is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. Shameful, isn't it? Please open to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, page 1193. Remember, this is sin in the present. He's told us how fruitless it was in the past. But right now, when a believer thinks back upon those very deeds, he's filled with shame. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 17. Or excuse me, verse 7. For they that sleep, sleep in the night, and they that be drunken are drunken in the night. But let us, who are of the day, be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and for in helmet the hope of salvation. For God hath not appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him. Do you know that your life is so united to Christ as a believer that when you are unconscious, you're still living for him? You're sleeping for Christ, he says. Look at that. Isn't that amazing? We're so united as one man together with him that he is there with us. But look at the shamefulness of those former deeds. Look at the people who get drunk. They want to cover their drunkenness under the fall of night. When people do their wicked and vile things, they don't generally do them out in the daylight. They hide themselves, and therefore, he says, you, as children of light, you're not to be like that. You're to be watchful. You're not to be asleep. You're not to be as others, but you are to be as children of the light, even when you sleep. But notice the shame. I mentioned nightclubs, women of the night, women of shameful repute, places and activities that are shameful are done at such clubs. Why? Because they're shameful deeds and they know it. There is a fruitless past, and when you think in the present back on the old ways, you are filled with shame. Now then, sin in the future. Fruitless in the past, shameful to think about it in the present. And what does it promise you for the future? For the end of those things, he says, is death. Now, end, we often think of as it's done. It's not around anymore. I've finished it. That's the end. But in the Bible, the end means like the fulfillment of a thing. When it comes to fruition... When you come in the race to the end and finish line of that race, when it accomplishes every part, that's the end. The telos is the word. The teleology of things is the study of where do these things tend toward? What's their natural result? Or you might say their supernatural result for those of us who understand providence. What is the telos? What is the final cause? We talked about that last week. 
the thing to which it points and accomplishes its goal, its purpose for existence. What is the chief end of man? What is his telos? What is his purpose? What makes his life worth living? What is the purpose of those things? What is the finish line? What is the fruit? What is the end result of those things of which you're now ashamed? Death. The end of those things. Death, he says. He does not even use the verb is. He leaves it out to emphasize how deadly those things are. Notice, our translation puts the word is in italics. It's not there in the Greek text. The apostle, through the guidance of the Holy Spirit, left it out to enable us to see the deadliness of these things. Doctrines and uses, then, from sin, past, present, and future. First, the Spirit of God piles on arguments to dissuade us from the practice of sin. Couldn't it just have been enough to say, look to Jesus, rest in him, and don't sin? Well, in a sense, that might be sufficient, but is that what God chose to do for our sakes? No. He gives us arguments. Here's a reason. Here's another reason. Here's a third reason. Think of the past. Think of the present. Think of the future. Reason thus with yourself. Is it acceptable? Is it suitable? Is it appropriate for me to continue in those things? Those things that were fruitless? Those things that caused me shame just to think back upon them? Those things that the fulfillment of their existence is death? Does that make any sense? First use of information. The Westminster Annotations say, the apostle in this verse deterreth from sin by a threefold argument. Deterring is where you try to stop people from doing something before they do it. How does the Spirit deter us? They say a threefold argument. Drawn from the three parts of time. You know that time has parts. There's the present, there's the past, and there is what is yet to come. Sin for the time past hath proved unfruitful. What fruit had ye then? For the time present, shameful, whereof ye are now ashamed. For the time to come, pernicious and deadly, for the end of those things is death. Is there a time when sin yields good to us? Is there a place where we can go, like Sin City? Can we go and find out that sin there yields so much good to us? No. There is no place. There is no time. There is no person in which sin yields any good. It is only destructive always. Sin for the time past hath proved unfruitful, for the time present shameful, for the time to come pernicious and deadly. Think that with yourself. Reason that with yourself. Consider that in your mind when sin comes and says, but I've got some good for you. I've got some pleasant things for you to do. I've got some thoughts for you to think, which will be oh so profitable for you in the end. Really? Is that so? What about the fruitlessness of my past life doing those very things? 
What about the shame that I sense now just to think back on what I did in those times? What about the telos of your evil, the death that it brings, the pernicious results, the misery and suffering? Is that good? No. No time, no place, no person. And this is why the Spirit of God piles on arguments. This is a rebuke to any who would entice us to the slavery or practice of sin. What they promise in freedom is mere freedom from God, our duty of obedience to him. At that time, he says, yes, you were free from righteousness when you were the bond slaves of sin. Peter says, while promising others freedom, they themselves are the servants of corruption. God's truth, that is our rule of faith and obedience. He's given to us a complete rule in the scriptures. Sin will promise you much, but will deliver little. It will give you these fruits of your own ways. You will cry, Lord, hear me, and he'll say, no. You didn't listen to me. Why should I listen to you? Do not be such a person. Do not listen to those who would entice. Do not be one who would entice others to do evil. For you do not love people you entice to evil. You hate them. You wish their damnation and destruction. You wish their misery. You wish them to be fruitless and shamed and dead. That's what you wish for them. Finally, an exhortation from this. If God expends this space in his holy book to dissuade us from sin, let us use the same arguments with ourselves. Let us use these same arguments with others to dissuade people from sin, to draw them aside away from it, to stop up the way so that their conscience and ours says, no, you know, that's right, I shouldn't be doing this. No, I should not give myself to these things. God persuades us. God piles on arguments. Let us do likewise. Now, what's the opposite of blocking up the way of sin? Well, you might say it's, well, to proclaim and entice. And in a sense, that's true. But there are lesser ways. Do we make excuses for our evil ways? Because you know, when you make an excuse for your sin, you're not telling it to get lost. You're telling it to stick around for a while. I've got work for you here. I've got some fruitless things I want to do. I have some shame that I'd like to bring on myself. And I have some death in my life and misery that I want to have. Make excuses for your sin. That's what you'll have. Parlay with temptation. Oh, is it not a little one, Lot said? You remember that? He's, tell, he's told, run to the hills. But what about this city right here? Can I just stop here? for? It's just a little city. No big deal. Did that help him? Did that make his life better? No, it brought death. It brought misery. It brought destruction. God tells us to pray. Lead us not into temptation. But then is that it? It's like praying, God, please provide my daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. But I'm not going to work because I know you're so good. You'll provide bread for me even if I don't work. Lord, lead me not into temptation, but I'm not going to worry about fighting off temptation because, Lord, I know I asked you not to lead me into it. You're not going to lead me into it. Is that what scripture says? 
Flee youthful lusts. Turn your back on temptation. Jesus said, watch and pray. Why? That ye enter not into temptation. You have work to do. I have work to do. It's not enough to ask God. If you're not going to use the means, it's not really a sincere prayer, is it? You're not going to use the means to get your daily bread. It's not sincere to ask God to give it to you. It's not sincere to say, God, lead me not into temptation, but I'll lead myself. That's hypocrisy. That's mocking God. God takes all this time to dissuade us from sinning. Let's do that for ourselves as well. Don't make excuses. Don't justify your sins. Don't wait around with temptation and parlay. Uh, yeah, I like it a little bit. Come a little closer, baby. Come on, let's just, just a little bit of misery and fruitless death. Come on. No, cut it off. Flee temptation. Watch and pray so that you don't even enter into it. A second doctrine. In God's moral government, there is always sowing seed and reaping fruit. In God's moral government, that is how he, as a just God, how he rules in the universe with his law as the standard to which he holds us. As he governs, he says, there's always going to be some result. Whatever way you choose, you, you plant a certain seed, you get a certain type of fruit. God has made the world to work this way. He has made a parity or a joining together of like with like. Like begets like, man begets man, beast begets beast. Onion seeds beget onion plants, don't they? Like begets like. So to yourselves, he said, in righteousness, and what's the like? What will you reap? Mercy. You will have more virtue for your prior virtue. Or if you sow the seeds of lawlessness and lies, what will you have? Iniquity unto iniquity, he says. Like will beget like. We will eat of the fruit of our own way. And that's true, he says, of the wicked, but that's also true of the godly. So an exhortation from this, let us sow seeds of righteousness. Let us more closely hear and keep the doctrines of Scripture. Let us more strictly conform our minds, our wills, our affections, our actions, our words, our reactions, our memory, and all things else to God's oracles. The life of a believer is like the rising of the sun. It gets greater and greater and greater until the end. If you see yourself going the wrong direction, you need to check yourself. You're going the wrong way. If you're getting less and less in holiness and truth, that's not a good sign. You're sowing the wrong kind of seed. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his flesh shall of the flesh reap happiness, joy, self-fulfillment. No, corruption. But he that soweth to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. We'll see this again, especially in verse 23. There is a fruit of the way of the godly, and that is eternal life. Not as a thing you've deserved. Not as a thing that you've earned. The wages are of sin. That's death. But God's free gift and the gift of righteousness, both in justification and in sanctification, what's the end of that? Life everlasting. 
God says, you plant these kinds of seeds, you get these kinds of fruits. You plant those kinds of seeds, you get those kinds of fruits. Let us then sow the seeds of righteousness. Let us sow to the Spirit of God, not to our flesh. A third doctrine. Shameful that I have to mention it, pun intended. Biblical salvation does not release us from the shame of our old life. It should say, does not, not do not. Biblical salvation does not release us from shame for our old life. When we served the Lord's sin, our conscience should condemn us if we think back upon those things. And those who are our true friends will not help us celebrate the evil deeds we did in the past. They will help us to see that they are shameful, not as a way of holding it over us, but as a way of helping our conscience to be properly formed. When we learn the word of God, as we think back upon our foolish choices we've made in times past, we should have shame. Those things we exercised ourselves in. This is a rebuke in the second use. This rebukes a misguided view of the gospel that somehow Christians should only have good vibrations, man. You should always feel good. And that's why Jesus died, so that you could have high self-esteem and feel good about yourself all the time. Is that what Paul said? No. No, he did not. He said, when you think back on your former way, what do you feel inside? What does your conscience tell you? Guilty. Shameful. You are ashamed by your own self when you think back on those things. So if someone says, well, that's introspective. Yeah. That's legalistic. No. That's morbid. No. Here, the apostle tells the Roman Christians that that's the appropriate response. That's an argument you can use by which you ought to seek in zeal to serve obedience unto righteousness, unto holiness. That ought to motivate you when you think back with shame on your past life. Many Christians lead a sluggish Christian life. Why? Because they feel no shame for their past evil deeds. I've known of a minister who wrote a book of tales of his life when he was wicked in his father's house. Now, his father was a minister. This man was a minister. His father was a minister. And he wrote tales of how he was such a bad boy back in his daddy's house. Is that how he should have thought of his wicked deeds in his youth? No. He should have been ashamed of himself to think back upon the evil that he did. But was he? No. So we defrocked him. We kicked him out of our denomination. He went into drunkenness and lawlessness and sin. Why? Because he had no shame over his former evil deeds. It is not legalistic. It is not morbid. It is not too introspective to have shame for our former life. Our former sins are not a badge of honor. Oh, Well, see, I got saved from a life of drug dealing, so you got to listen to me, man. I'm a super Christian. No. You should be ashamed of your former life, not boast about it, not write books about it. Be ashamed. An exhortation then from this. If biblical salvation does not release us from the shame of our old life, let us then exercise our senses to discern good and evil. What does God say in our former life was good? 
And what does he say was evil? There are things that can be good in their physical sense. You do a good thing, even though your intention is wicked and spiritually it's a sin. Better to do that sort of sin than another sort of sin. But when we think back upon our old life, we must evaluate it in terms of Scripture. What does God actually condemn in my former deeds? How can my conscience be properly formed? Which brings us to a fourth use of instruction. What is the conscience? Well, it produces a judgment inside of us. The Greek word, much like the Latin word, conscientia, means together with knowledge. That's what conscience means in Latin. But in Greek, it's the same. Sun edison. Soon is together with, and edison is your mental faculty, your rational or your theoretical view of reality. So these things, together with your mental perception, there is a little judge who sits there. And your mental function tells the judge how he ought to judge. What things ought you to condemn? What things ought you to approve of? That's the conscience. That's what it is. It is a practical judgment of our words, our thoughts, and our deeds based off of some standard in our mind that says this is right and this is wrong. Now, if you would improve your conscience, there are some things you ought to do. First, you must inform your mind. Your mind will tell your conscience what is right and what is wrong. Therefore, if your mind is misinformed, what will happen with your conscience? It might judge you for something that's right. Or it might release you from something that is wrong because your mind is not properly formed. So we must inform our mind. We must study the law. We must know its precepts. We must know the implication of its precepts or its prohibitions. Tells me to do this. Tells me not to do this. What else does that require of me? Are there other things that I should not be doing that are related to this. You can read our larger catechism for a detailed analysis of all the Ten Commandments. What else is required by thou shalt not kill? What else is prohibited by thou shalt not kill? Well, if your conscience is properly formed and you're reading the Word of God and you're hearing it and growing in your knowledge of it, your conscience can make better judgments. You can know, what is it that I should have been ashamed or right now should be ashamed of, if you inform your mind. Second, another way to improve your conscience is, be ready to listen to your conscience. Do not suppress it when it calls you to judgment, especially then. When your conscience calls you to judgment in in matters that are neither good or evil, in different matters, you ought to listen to it. But if it calls you to judgment in in moral matters, you should especially listen to your conscience. And that's what I was saying earlier. Excusing our sins is saying, Mr. Conscience, don't be so judgmental. Well, that's his job. That's the job of your conscience. It's part of your soul. It's like a little God sitting there and judging you, some of the theologians would say. It's God's deputy to exercise vengeance on you when you do what is evil. God put that there. Don't ignore your conscience. Don't push it off with excuses. Don't say why your evil deed is okay or your conscience will stop judging you and you don't want that. That's called hardness of heart or blindness of mind. When the conscience says, you know, 
my job is to judge you and you keep on telling me not to judge, I'm out of here, I quit. Then you become a reprobate because you have no conscience to judge for you. So listen, be prepared, be ready, and be sensitive to your conscience. Don't suppress its call to judgment. You might find that it approves of you more than it should, but even there, your conscience should approve of you. You should want the approval of your conscience informed by the word of God. Then finally, learn to evaluate your conscience. Is the voice of my conscience according to truth? If so, continue to listen to it. Is it according to error? Then change your conscience. A conscience can be sincerely informed of falsehood. People can sincerely believe that they should make graven images and bow before them, but they shouldn't because God prohibits it. So if your conscience approves and God disapproves, change your mind. It's called repentance. Change your conscience by changing your mind. Does your conscience judge according to preference? This is important too. What are moral matters? Because then it's right or wrong. What are my preferences? What does my freedom say in these indifferent matters? Well, then listen to your conscience. You may hold what you have in your conscience. Don't hold anybody else to it. It's not a moral matter. It is an indifferent matter, and learn to distinguish the two. Many Christians have disputes with other Christians over indifferent matters, neither good nor evil. One person does it this way, another person does it that way. Follow your conscience, be charitable toward the conscience of others, and as you learn in the scriptures, your conscience will become better informed, so that you may know, Is this a deed of which I should be ashamed? Or is this a deed of which God approves? But in all things, as the Apostle Paul said, he exercised himself in order to have a conscience void of offense toward God and toward man. That was his goal. And that is our goal. We are to be like athletes training our minds. Our minds is the exercise that we do so that we can know what is good and what is evil, and so that we can avoid offense against a good conscience. So then, to sum up, in this whole message we've looked at, if you are brought into temptation to sin, recall the past of sin. What is it? Fruitless. Bondage. Recall the present thought of sin, which is what? Shame. And recall the future of sin, death, and argue thus with yourself, this is why I should not continue in sin. This is why I ought not to do this evil deed. And this is the Christian life of growing in grace and in knowledge. May the Lord bless us in it.